Welcome to Stewardship Spotlight, a podcast featuring conversations with the world's leading experts on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship. This podcast is produced by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. I'm Dr. Marnie Peterson, your host. Advanced microbiology techniques are rapidly changing our ability to diagnose infections, improve patient care, and enhance clinical workflow. In this special limited series of Stewardship Spotlight, we will be focusing on the ways that these diagnostic tools can improve patient outcomes, improve quality of care, and lead to economic benefits as part of antimicrobial stewardship programs. We will examine the benefits of diagnostic tools and how they can be integrated into the future of healthcare. This mini-series is supported by a grant from BioMario. In this episode, we will discuss with Dr. Tim Brook his previously published paper, The Effect of Molecular Rapid Diagnostic Testing on Clinical Outcomes in Bloodstream Infections, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which is linked in the episode notes if you want to follow along. Our conversation will focus on how rapid diagnostic testing can be paired with antimicrobial stewardship policy to improve clinical outcomes in high-income countries. Welcome, Tristan, and why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, Give us some background as to uh, what your role was at the time of conducting this research and uh, where you currently are in your career. Uh, So at the time of this research, uh, I was a uh, postdoc outcomes research fellow uh, in Providence, Rhode Island at the VA and uh, the uh, University of Rhode Island. After uh, going there, I uh, ended up going to University of uh, Utah to do antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, so uh, by training, I'm an infectious disease pharmacist that does antimicrobial stewardship. Additionally, again, I have a health uh, services research training, so a little bit of academia, a little bit of clinical. Um, and currently, I uh, ended up transitioning after being as a stewardship pharmacist at the University of Utah uh, for a few years and then uh, did a quick stint in faculty in the School of Medicine and Division of Epidemiology, and now I'm switched over to um, director, of, director of Health Economics Outcomes Research uh, at BioMario. Great, and we'll, we'll we'll get into some of your uh, current interests um, at the end of this um, conversation. But just to focus first on this paper, it was very very seminal. Um, Comprehensive, 31 studies, included almost six th- data from 6,000 patients. So just for the listeners, what give them, an, give them some background on what prompted you and your, your collaborators to conduct re- research in this area, specifically choosing bloodstream infections. So um, as I mentioned, I, uh, you know, did this paper whenever I was an outcomes research fellow and uh, before that, I was uh, uh, an infectious diseases resident down at Medical University of South Carolina, and this is around 2013. Uh, we were one of the first adopters of uh, one of the new rapid diagnostic technologies of bloodstream infection in you know my uh, residency year. And so I saw firsthand a lot of the you know anecdotal experience with power and impact of having that early information uh, within bloodstream infections. And uh, I got to fellowship and I wanted to continue to do that sort of research as, you know, uh, was really interesting to me um, and had done some of that research during residency. But uh, I got to outcomes research fellowship and the the setting and practice site that I had, we didn't have rapid diagnostics and bloodstream infections anymore. So it was sort of like a step back. And so part of the impetus was uh, really trying to, uh, you know, at a local level, 
convince people um, and administrators that we need to move forward with this. And so what was the overall data within the literature to support us adopting this locally? But then moreover, you know, the 2016 IDSA uh, stewardship guidelines came out, you know, around that time. And they only gave a weak recommendation for the use of rep diagnostics and bloodstream infections. And again, having had that experience, you know, firsthand during residency, I didn't feel like that was worth a weak recommendation. And so I really wanted to, uh, again, present sort of a systematic fashion of what the data said. Yeah, with bloodstream infections, it's so critical to have uh, effective treatment as soon as possible, uh, affecting mortality risk and, and, you know, potentially you can even decreased length of stay. So, um, and also you talked a little bit of background. Uh, I'd like to know some key objectives that you were keen to study to, to try to um, show the overall impact of rapid diagnostics compared to conventional microbiology, as well as, you know, did the stewardship play a role? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we had a lot of questions, you know, like, um, you know, what sort of impact did rapid diagnostics have uh, on clinical outcomes? And, you know, when we talk about clinical outcomes, particularly in the acute care space within hospitals, usually the things we think about most often as far as, you know, patient outcomes would be um, mortality uh, uh, based off, you know, sort of the impact. Um, but then also length of stay uh, related to not only cl- uh, patient care, um, but in general, how that translates into cost um, and whether or not you're sort of being cost effective within a stewardship program. So I, I think both of those and then sort of getting at the plausibility behind seeing each one of those incremental benefits is, you know, are we actually improving therapy? And so getting at time to effective therapy, I think, kind of paints the story of that plausibility behind decreases in mortality and length of stay. It was, a, it was a tall task. It was extremely comprehensive um, to aggregate all this data together. What was your impetus for that? Again, I, I felt like that, uh, you know, I went and was trying to get rapid diagnostics uh, adopted in my local practice site. And I, I was getting a lot of pushback and uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, the the CDC uh, had done, uh, it, it was in CMR around that time, a paper where they evaluated uh, rapid diagnostics and bloodstream infections, but they really didn't do a, a meta-analysis approach to it, pretty limited scope. And so it really just hadn't been done. And having had that experience and knowing that it definitely, at least in my opinion and my experience, made a difference, I really think uh, a lot of people nationally were in the same position as I was, where they know that, you know, based off the data, that it probably makes a difference, but there wasn't anything that was really strong to hand over to an administrator and say, hey, this definitely does make a difference. And so I wanted to create a, you know, a, a publication or scholarship that uh, communicated that. And, that. and that's an entire process of which you vetted all of the literature, uh, removed that which was duplicative, um, English, English language written, written papers. Um, and, and you had some key questions and you also described the rapid diagnostics as a, a test that could deliver a result within less than 24 hours. Yep. So what were your, what were your key, what were some of your key um, questions, comparators, as we talk about the results here? Yeah. So I, you know, again, kind of diving into it a little bit, we picked a length of stay, uh, mortality, uh, and time to effective therapy. It was sort of a pragmatic selection based off of my experience with the literature of doing, you know, CEs, et cetera, because, you know, length of stay, it has a pretty consistent sort of way that it's defined within papers. 
where, you know, it's total hospital length of stay, it's hospital length of stay from culture collection, infection-related length of stay. But it, it, you get into things like de-escalation of therapy, and every paper that you pull has a different definition on how they're evaluating uh, de-escalation of therapy. So it, things that had really consistent sort of uh, definitions that had enough homogeneity that um, it made sense to pull an effect through a metal analytical technique. Um, those were, again, the sorts of outcomes that we wanted to select. And it, again, we we kind of subsetted those uh, for stewardship versus non-stewardship because, I, again, I felt like even today that becomes a, a conversation with different technologies, uh, different implementation strategies is what is the role of stewardship and how hands-on does it need to be to make it successful? And so uh, that, again, is why we did the subgroup analysis to see, you know, hey, does that make a, a significant sort of effect modification for the effect of the diagnostic? And, you know, sure enough, we did see that. Um, the other one was really talking about um, differences that you'll see based off of sort of the organism group. Um, so we got into, you know, gram positives versus gram negatives versus yeast. Because sometimes you'll talk to, uh, you know, laboratory people, uh, you know, frontline clinicians that are bedside and they'll talk about, well, for gram positives, it definitely makes a difference. But for, you know, gram negatives, uh, mortality is lower. You know, a lot of times uh, maybe we don't have the same sort of resistance where, you know, MRSA, you know, uh, upwards of 50 percent in, you know, different cases. But for, you know, uh, gram negatives. Uh, ESBLs could be as low as, you know, uh, 5% in some locations. Um, so maybe it doesn't make it as big as a difference for um, gram negatives. But again, having seen that firsthand on how much of a difference, how much it streamlined patient management, I, I felt like it was important to communicate that. And so we looked at those. And again, each one of those also uh, having significant outcomes in the stratification except for yeast. Uh, but if you've ever spent any time in the yeast literature, it's so infrequent of an event um, that you get into these real small sample sizes. But as we know, uh, you know, Kevin Gary has a, a sort of classical paper on, you know, t the importance of time to effective therapy and candidemia. So even though we didn't see it, I still think it's probably true that it does affect uh, patient outcomes in candidemia as well. So you found a difference in um, mortality risk with uh, rapid diagnostics versus conventional um, microbiological studies. And then you also found that stewardship combined with rapid diagnostics also had an even greater impact. Um, the time to effective therapy decreased by up to five hours or greater than five hours. Um, and then your length of stay decreased by almost two and a half days. So as you mentioned, there's also a, this potential patient quality, of course, and outcomes, but also uh, there's a cost effectiveness component uh, one of the things that you mentioned, if we get into some of the conclusions, uh, limitations of the study, um, most of these studies were in hospital or academic centers with a few in a community setting. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and, you know, how, what you might be thinking about how this could be implemented into other, other health settings. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good and interesting point. Um, the... The thing that I, I think a lot about with diagnostics is, you know, like in pharmacoepidemiology, you, you give a patient a drug and so they have a direct exposure. And so if you had a defined patient population, you can have a pretty consistent effect. Um, for diagnostics, it's really, at least in my opinion, all about the implementation. I, I mean, granted, there are other, you know, patient population, there could be different effects uh, based off acuity of illness. Uh, also, local epidemiology of disease, because if you have a rapid answer, 
um, you know, that gives you a probability of resistance, then uh, it, it really depends also on your, your sort of local resistance profile of how often you have a resistance versus how broad spectrum your local prescribing is. Um, so it, it really uh, gets into a lot of sort of different probabilities versus, again, pharmacoepidemiology. You give a, a drug and you get a pretty consistent effect. Um, so I, I think it's a pretty complex uh, thing to unpack on sort of the generalizability of, um, you know, to you know, community settings versus academic, uh, going outside the United States, because most of the papers, uh, except for a couple, were within the U.S. Um, but I think in general, when you break it down, uh, the most consistent sort of scenario is for culture, it's always, you know, 48, 72 hours, no matter where you are and what city state you're talking about for the most part, you know. And so really getting it down to, you know, that uh, hour to 18 hours, depending on what you're doing as far as the rapid diagnostic technology um, and fundamentally shifting that, that time period to make early informed decision making to streamline the patient care. I, I think that works everywhere. Um, now, again, the uh, how well you're making decisions. Uh, we've seen lots of papers that talk about, uh, say, the sort of familiarity of uh, rapid diagnostics. So, uh, for instance, Rachel Foster had an excellent paper that surveyed uh, clinicians on their familiarity and showed that really the people that get it the most are, you know, infectious disease trained uh, clinicians. And so I, I think, uh, again, it, it, there's sort of incremental um, improvements that you can get based off of implementation strategies, having uh, local expertise, which, again, is recommended in the core elements of stewardship. Um, uh, uh, so I do think that it will improve care and does improve care in community settings. Uh, the one caveat that I wanted to throw out there that I feel like a lot of people probably miss is if you notice you know, we had a, a relative uh, uh, risk, uh, actually it was an odds ratio, you know, about a 30% uh, uh, difference uh, um, between uh, culture versus rapid diagnostics for mortality. But if you do, um, you know, put that into an absolute risk reduction and look at the proportions, uh, we were looking at uh, about a 5% uh, absolute risk reduction, uh, which is, you know, kind of consistent, you know, again, going back to pharmacoepidemiology, when you do superiority trials, um, uh, that sort of effect is uh, within the range of things that people shoot for often. Um, but if you do a sample size calculation for uh, that, uh, most community hospitals aren't going to see that effect based off the of volume of patients for a very, very long time. So, it, it, you know, you'll see posters, you'll see individual studies. But again, a lot of times because, you know, this isn't a, a huge effect, um, uh, for uh, particularly mortality, because again, it is sort of very heterogeneous as far as patient population and uh, the factors that go into mortality um, that often you won't see that in single centers. So you worked on this paper and it was published. You know, if you're just talking to someone about, okay, I think I'm, I read your paper. I think I might want to start somewhere. Um, maybe just tell me a couple of recommendations you would give those individuals. So... You know, implementing, uh, again, it's, it's a lot of moving parts to it. So, you know, you think about your local epidemiology. And so do we need, uh, you know, do we have enough resistance where we want to change those probabilities of getting the correct therapy? Or are our broad spectrums, because we don't have any resistance, you know, is that enough to get a mono-effective therapy? Are we concerned about resistance enough that, you know, we want to be able to de-escalate or, because, you know, you think about like pyelonephritis, 85% of UTIs are 
E. coli, right? And if you don't have any E. coli resistance, you know, ceftriaxone is going to be the right thing 90% of the time, right? Um, and so it, in cases where, um, and I feel like this applies in most places because, you know, it's all about sort of improving care and sort of moving the needle. Um, but if you have the opportunity to invest in this technology so you can get it right more often, so you can avoid excessive antibiotics more because, you know, we, we have good data that, you know, one in five patients that are hospitalized have uh, adverse effects to antibiotics when they're on them. It's about a 5% increase in adverse effects with antibiotics per day. Um, so these technologies, again, regardless of where you're at, usually can improve care. Um, but, you know, again, implementing it, it really, I always uh, love the phrase, uh, teamwork makes the dream work. It really takes a village uh, to make them successful. And so, you know, having uh, a multidisciplinary sort of stakeholder group, uh, you know, with people from laboratory, from your stewardship team, from your ID team, uh, even infection prevention control, because, you know, we get these rapid diagnostic markers and uh, you'll know that, hey, this patient might need to be isolated because they have, you know, a carbapenemase uh, producer. Um, and so, a, you know, getting that whole team together to really plan out and think about what technology makes sense for our local setting. Um, and then how are we going to implement that? And what does that look like sort of as a process flow soup to yeah. nuts? Yeah, really, um, really customizing what you select um, to match your resistance profiles or your, your actual setting is most important. Just don't don't think what, what works for somebody will, will work for your setting. Um, so uh, a final question here is um, this study, you know, you reviewed the literature up through 2016 and um, then it was published in 2017. What, where, where's the field gone since? Um, I, I think in general, you know, we um, are starting to get a lot more tools uh, for stewardship uh, people to use. Uh, you know, on the inpatient side, uh, you know, with respiratory disease, with uh, going beyond blood cultures to sepsis uh, sorts of syndromes, so sort of direct specimen testing. Uh, but at least for me, the you know, I I, I feel like also around this time, uh, there's this you know paper from Catherine Fleming Dutra that came from the CDC uh, in JAMA, and you know, talking about you know at least not not you know, a specific point of estimate, but at least a third of outpatient antibiotic carbo prescribing would be inappropriate. And so I think all of us in the stewardship uh, sort of community, at least definitely I feel this way, is every day I start to think more and more about the outpatient setting and what sorts of stewardship solutions that we have for that setting and what can we do with, you know, diagnostics maybe for that setting. Um, and so that's probably where I think most of us are starting to go towards and definitely where I spend most of my time thinking about. Absolutely. Um, I just want to thank you, Dr. Turnbrook, today for your time, taking us through your paper and giving us um, projections on where, where the field is going. Thank you. This is Dr. Marnie Peterson. And you've been listening to Stewardship Spotlight, a podcast produced by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project Team at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Our podcast editor is Maya Peters. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our website, sidrap.umn.edu ASP, or you can click on the link in this episode's description. You can also find us on Twitter, at SIDRAP underscore 
ASP.